Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher bakarvanu mikol hamim, Venatan lanu et torato, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten ha-Torah, Amen. Baruch abashem Adonai. Thank you for joining me on the Agarit to the Romans uh, podcast that corresponds with the weekly parasha. I am continuing to follow the Seder of Eretz Yisrael. So this week is Parsha Beha Alotka, which is when you lift up the light or when you kindle the flame of another Yehudi. You can find this portion in Bami Bar chapter 8, 1 through uh, chapter 12, verse 16. So... This week, I will be in the Agarit to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. You then, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach, lo tignov, which is do not steal, as in Shemot 20, verse 15. Do you steal? Verse 22. You who say lo tinaf. Do not commit adultery, as in Shemot 20, verse 14. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor Elilim, idols, do you rob pagan temples? You who boast in the Torah, as in Egeret Romans, chapter 4, verse 2, Luke 17, 10, Romans, again, you got it to Rome, uh, 2, verse 29, chapter 3, and verse 20, and the Agedit to the Galatians, chapter 2, 15 through 21, all about you who boast in Torah. Through deviating from the Torah, you commit Hilul Hashem, literally you desecrate Hashem's name when you deviate from Torah. Even though you boast in Torah, you can still desecrate the name of Hashem as you deviate from what you boast in. Very interesting. We'll get to commentary momentarily. Verse 24, as it is written, among the Goyim, kol hayom Hashem ha'elohim min na'otz, which is all the day long the name of God is being blasphemed. As stated in Yeshayahu 52.5. And he ends by saying, because of you. So the one who teaches, do not steal, and they steal. And those who teach, but don't teach themselves. Okay, let's back up. Those who teach others, but don't teach themselves. Those who say, don't steal, but they steal. Those who say, don't commit adultery, but they commit adultery. Those who abhor idols but yet they rob temples those who boast in torah yet deviate from it this all is a desecration to hashem and it causes the name of hashem to be blasphemed so very very interesting when you consider beha alotzka is the torah portion that talks about the menorah it also talks about the um the traveling and the journeys of the children of Israel. It has the Vayib and Soah, the Arise Adonai and let your enemies be scattered, a section of Torah that counts as a whole book by itself. 
making Bamit Bar into a three-in-one sefer. You have the beginning, and then you have this these two verse these few verses here in the Vahivan Soa, and then you have the rest of Bamit Bar. And up until that section with the double noons where the Vahivan Soa appears, then you have uh, like a positive section of like they're building the temple or the Mishkan, they're bringing the offerings, there's all the tribes, there's all the countings, everything is wonderful and beautiful. And then all after a sudden, the Vaiheben Soa happens. Now there's the plagues of fire that are breaking out in the camp. There's the crying out for quail, lusting for meat, uh, and all sorts of things that are beginning to happen, all leading up to um, slandering the land, sending in spies, and the rebellion of Korak. So, uh, well, which Korak happens first, and then after that it goes on. So, when you really look at everything that is transpiring, it is uh, very, very interesting. So, just to kind of give you um, a little bit of a header on uh, where these verses break up here. We have, um, let's see here. I'll give you the chapter and verse delineation because it's one thing to know that this Torah um, section breaks up, but it'd be good to know where that happens. Okay, so it is... Whenever the children of Israel would travel. Okay, so we got the trumpets going on. Okay, the trumpets start in chapter 10. And... Okay, so yes, in chapter 10, we got the sixth reading here. Um, we got the Vahiv and Soa. So, in chapter 10, verses 35, basically the sixth Aliyah, where the sixth Aliyah begins is where the Torah breaks up with these first two verses here. So it says, whenever the ark would set out, Moshe would say, Arise, Adonai, may your enemies be scattered, may those who hate you flee from you. And when the ark came to rest, Moshe would say, Repose, O God, among the myriads and thousands of Israel. So, when you really look at that, Afterwards, we go right into the place of Tavera, which is where the fire breaks out and kills a whole bunch of people. So there's some, uh, oh, just so you know, literally in, uh, right after we do the Vahib Ben Salah, okay, these two verses we finish, we go into the third Sefer of Bamibar now. So we went one and then two was the Vahib Ben Salah, now three. We're in chapter 11. Literally, it starts off by saying, people sought a pretext. And it's like God became angry. 
So if you read the interpolated from the Kehot Humash, it says this. After they had camped, some people from the mixed multitude had second thoughts about submitting to God's laws and therefore sought a pretext to avoid serving him. They decided to complain in a way that would be evil in God's ears, i.e. they would vex him. So they complained about how weary they were after making a three-day journey in one day. God heard this and became angry. For after all, he had made them travel this fast in order to hasten their entry into Eretz Israel, like to hasten the redemption, right? Continuing, it says, a fire from God broke out among them, consuming those at the extreme moral poles of the camp. Okay, so the very far ends of the camp. And it says, these elements of the mix multitude and the 70 elders who should have or yes who should have inculcated them with proper values and who deserve to die in any case for behaving irreverently at the giving of the Torah there was a time where they were supposed to go up the mountain back in Shemot 24 where Hashem was talking to Moshe come up to Hashem and they were looking at the glory of God and they were eating and drinking. And of course, it wasn't a packed lunch that they brought to quote Rabbi Griffin of Lapid, uh, Sar Shalom. So, um, you know, you just think about, OK, so they're seeking a pretext to avoid s submitting to the laws of Torah. And this is evil and they're doing it in a way that vexes him. And this actually, the source for this is Lakute Sikot, volume 19, page 1, note 3. Because you realize that there are men, women, and children, infants, uh, that are walking together. And literally, their shoes aren't wearing out, their clothes aren't wearing out. They have plenty of water to drink because if they are thirsty, the rock literally gushes out as much water that would create a lake enough for the people to drink, and enough for their livestock to drink. And then on top of that, they're talking about they want, they want meat. And it's just kind of like, but you have manna. And it tastes like whatever you want it to taste like. Also, you know how to do kosher slaughter now because the Torah was given to Moshe and you're learning it. And so, you know, there's all that. And it's just kind of like, well, we just want something that you're not giving us right now. And it's very, very just... Uh, it's angering to Hashem. And so when you really think about what we're talking about here in the Agarit to the Romans in chapter two, these things are very, very uh, angering. They stir up lots of wrath. Again, it causes the name of Hashem to be Hilul. Hilul is a word that is very, very like horrible. Like, uh, if you wanted to damage someone's property and put hateful messages on them and uh, cause that property to not be usable again, unless it, it, it could be repaired, that's what a Hilul to the name of Hashem is. So in other words, when Hilul Hashem happens, not only is it temporarily rendered basically um ineffective 
i.e. no one fears his name, no one even uh, bows before him, no one even second thinks, is this my thought or is this Hashem's thought? Because you realize when it comes to how we live, move, and have our very being, our very existence, it's all because of Hashem. So one who completely pushes Hashem aside and renders him ineffective as the true king of the universe that he is, you do that when you create, when you commit Hilul Hashem. To go back to my example, uh, say for instance, you have a car and someone flattened your tires, busted your windows, wrote a horrible message on it and siphoned all your gas out. That is called Hilul. That would be an example of that. So, however it is possible to do that to the name of Hashem, that is what's happening. So, without getting too um, just horrible about this, for 2,000 years, Hashem's name has suffered being blasphemed. And Hashem has totally been okay with that because it's a part of his long suffering. However, at the same time, as all of the suffering is going on, because, you know, he's sitting at the gates of, the, of Rome, he's rebandaging his bandages, and he's waiting for the moment to when the final redemption should occur. Whether we merit it or whether it's going to come when Hashem has appointed it. For some reason, when the understanding of hastening the final redemption is presented. There is this picture of, oh, who am I? Yeah, we'll just let Hashem do it. It's already written in Revelation, and that's cool. Well, let me just give you a note on that. The reason why Revelation is not in the Tanakh is not because it's not an accepted writing and canon of Jewish literature. It's actually not in there because it is a prophecy of doom and destruction well, parts of it. There's a lot of beautiful worship and things going on in there. But most of it is, or parts of it, have lots of doom and destruction. And the thing is, is harsh and evil decrees, as we're also going to learn shortly via the Tehillim, can be overturned. So unless it is something that is going to happen for sure, it's not in the Tanakh. And by the way, prophecies are timeless. They are past, present, and future. So when you really look at Revelation, we don't we shouldn't just hang our hat on it and be like, well, end time's gonna be horrible. We'll just let all this horrible stuff happen. We'll let stars fall out of the sky and we'll let the dragon and the beast with all the horns like rise up and have the image of people stamped on the foreheads and the six hundred and sixty and six, which people call six 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 and all that kind of stuff. We'll just let that all go crazy, let the two prophets be dead in the middle of the street and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's fine. We'll just do that because there's no way we can hasten the redemption and that's crazy anyway. Life is good here. Why do we need to have th people thinking about moving to Israel or why do we need to have people thinking about returning to the temple service? You know, um, as far as we know here in America, God is all about the church. And Jews need to learn about church and JC and Christianity that, my friends, is the thought process that plagues the mind of many believers in the world today. 
So we wonder why Mashiach hasn't returned yet. Well, the people who proclaim him and who say they love him, first of all, seek pretext to get out of Torah, i.e. it's been done away with. Uh, Israel is no longer God's chosen people. Chaspei Shalom. Uh, we need to do this Messianic Jewishness thing, which means if you're a Gentile, stay a Gentile. You can still love God. If you so desire to move your status and category, why don't you just be what's called a Noahide, which is kind of a working and progress kind of theology that was uh, swerved and perverted from its original uh, thought. You realize the Gertoshav and the Noahide were academic um, exercises, for lack of better terms. These aren't actual things, but these were kind of in thought, kind of like, okay, what if situations, for lack of a better term. And uh, myself and a few other Lapidniks over Shabbat, uh, coming into the final hours of Shabbat, were just going through Yevamot and, um, or Slika, we're going through Yoma, Yevamot. I can't remember which one it was. Hang on, let me pull up my note here real quick. I apologize. Yoma, it was in Yoma. We were looking through Yoma on some things because it was talking about, um, uh, nope, it's either Yoma or Yevamot. Yes, it is Yevamot Slicha. Okay, so Yevamot 47A and Yevamot 46B. Okay, because in there it is going through everything about conversion. So I just want to point out if the Talmud and if the Aliyah Day features so many different sources, Aliyah Day by Rabbi Griffin with Sar Shalom. Please check that out. So mysarshalom.com, get you some. Okay, uh, seriously, Aliyah Day is amazing. It's podcasted via Anchor and Facebook live uh, every day. Uh, it is uh, 9.30 in the morning during the six working days. And on Shabbat, we are at Shul, so it's not on that day. And on Yom Rishon, which is one of the six working days. Uh, it is at 10.30 a.m. So you can catch all those there. I also share them on my Twitter page. So I have an Amet Twitter page. Amet Lapide um, is my... Uh, you can find me on the web that way. So Shomerman Podcast, Amet, a.k.a. Shomerman, Amet Lapide, all there. You can find any of that. So continuing on, you look through this Yeva mode and it's so back and forth. It's like, so conversion happens with circumcision or conversion happens with mikvah. Conversion happens even without any of that. And it's like, when does conversion actually happen? The halakha goes with that it's actually at circumcision, but no one can say the bracha for the mikvah until they've immersed one time and then they can say the bracha for the mikvah. And it's like, why is that the case? Because only a Jew can say the bracha for a mikvah. So it's just kind of like, but wait, I thought if they were circumcised, they are Jewish, like they've converted. And that counts because that's where the halakha goes. But it's like, well, actually, really, when you technically look at everything, it's when you immerse into the mikvah one time, you say the bracha, and then you immerse two more times. 
which means you immerse three times and you immerse in three names. You immerse in the three names of Hashem when you enter into the mikvah. So when Yeshua says, immerse the nations as you teach them in the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, what's that really saying? Because you realize Hashem is a chad, right? That's not like a three different gods kind of thing. So no trinity, no, none of that kind of thought. It's just saying Hashem has many names. By the way, Judaism teaches Hashem has 72 names. He has a 72 letter name. And also the Torah is one whole name of Hashem. So there's all that to throw into the mix. But when you look at that, you can just go to what Yeshua says in Yochanan, the writings of Yochanan, where he says that you can't see the wind, but you can tell its effects. And this is the same with those who are born of the spirit. So really, when is a person actually a convert? You can't really know until you know. <laughs> and so if someone is going to claim that they're a convert, Bezrat Hashem, they understand that do not lie or do not bear false witness is like one of the top 10. You should probably not go around doing that. Okay. So anyway, just bringing that all up to say, because when you think about everything that's been transpiring over the past 2000 years, there's been a lot of Hilul Hashem. So I encourage everyone as Lepidniks, as Avengers, as Sar Shalom, please stand up. Please live double noon lives like 100 percent. Live a Muna on 1100 is is what I would like to coin saying now. Uh, 1100 is apparently some kind of slang for like all the way over the top. And we need a little bit of that right now. So. Hilul Hashem, don't do it, don't desecrate Hashem's name. So let's break down our four verses. So one, two, three, four. Yes, we got four verses. All right, so verse 21, Egeret to the Romans chapter 2, verse 21. It says, you then who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach, lo tignov which, by the way, is a tav in front of the word ganav. Ganav is to steal or be a thief. And so when you add a tav, like those who say, you basically say, you shall not, which is low, do not tav ganav, which means you shall not. Okay, because te ganav or tignov means shall steal. And so if you put the negative in front of it, you shall not steal. Okay. Anyway, just a little Hebrew grammar for you. Um, the Tav insinuates something shall happen and something is going to. So when you think about uh, Teshua, which is the word for deliverance, it means that will and surely it shall happen. Okay. Uh, so the... Next thing here, so just kind of going on this verse, continuing, it says, this is Shemot 20, verse 15. So you're teaching other people and you're not teaching yourself and you're saying, do not steal, but yet you steal. So when you look at what this is, stealing is actually equaling to hypocrisy. 
And so I was looking at this because I was kind of caught way off guard, actually. And I was sharing this with my Eshet Chayil, the one called Hatzira, which is the Avenger, the Wasp. And uh, she's the Shomer version of that, of her, and uh, throws down. And so we were talking about this, and she's just kind of like, okay, so mental process. And I'm like, I have no idea. But I'm looking at the juxtaposition of why Shaul would put the mitzvah from Parsha Yitro of do not steal next to his writing about you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Like when you teach someone but you don't teach yourself, you're stealing. And you're a hip you're a hypocrite. And, you know, she came up with the fact that it it's hypocrisy because obviously you're not you're not like doing what you teach. You're not living it out. And I'm kind of like, wow, so this is like stealing and hypocritical, like all at the same time. Because the other thing we have to realize, what are we teaching? Uh, it should be the word of God, I I hope, like a whole lot of hope. Because when you look at that, if you're teaching the word of God, but yet you're not doing it, you're now stealing because what you teach, you should have learned. And what you learn, you should do. These are simple Pirke Avot drops. Just read Pirke Avot and you learn about studying to do, studying to teach, studying to practice, all this. And now you're out here teaching and you're like, hey, don't steal stuff. And you're like, but you just stole your whole drosh. How long was your drosh? Was it like 45 minutes or was it like 15 minutes because people had to go watch the game or something? Or like where you're just going for hours and it's just kind of like, but you've stolen and you're hypocritical because you're not doing what you're teaching and you're not, you're not even, you know, understanding apparently what you're teaching because had you understood what you taught and understood what you're teaching and understand what you're learning, then you would do it. Because by the way, if we know that we shouldn't steal, but yet we go out and steal, if we don't get caught, that's that's something right there that's called the mercy and the grace of God. And if you take you're not getting caught and you basically take for granted and capitalize on the mercy and grace of God by being like, oh, yeah, I know I stole. It's totally fine. I'm just going to hope that uh, next time I steal, I can do this again. So now you're saying prayers to be a thief. You know, and you're praying before you steal. You might as well start throwing brachot away, like in the trash. Because now you're definitely committing Hilul Hashem. You're making the name of Hashem look bad because here you are being a teacher, knowing good and well what you should not be doing, and yet you're going out and doing it. And it's just kind of like, wow. So stealing is hypocrisy. And uh, that is just something that I and my Kala were droshing about. And we think it's very interesting because, oh, because her thing about the mental, you know, take a mental assessment here. How in the world do you not do something that you teach? You know, like you've learned this, but yet you're not doing it either. 
you're not taking the weight of what you learn as something serious or you're just wasting your time and whatever motive you have, it's, it's not matching up with what the word says. So are you making yourself like the serpent going to Havas and Adams in the garden? Or are you being the voice of Hashem walking in the cool of the day with Adam, leading him to the tree of life? Bezrat Hashem, hopefully he would partake of it before going to the other tree or instead of going after the other tree. The choice is ours. Verse 22. So you who say lotinaf, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor elilim, if you do the elenu, we talk about casting uh, detestable idols, like out of existence, out of creation, casting them away from the earth, banishing idolatry from the earth, the spirit of impurity. So when you look at all of that, we use this word elilim in there because elilim are nothings. And you go back to, I believe it was Parsha and more, or uh, maybe, oh, maybe Parsha Kedoshim. Not really sure, but there is a verse in there about, you know, not having idols and getting rid of them and they're detestable and don't, don't worship them. Rashi brought down a literal comment that says an idol is nothing, which is what Shaul also says to the Kehila the congregation, the kahal, the gathering of the believers in Corinth. And when you understand what that means, that doesn't just mean, oh, since the idol's nothing, I can own it in my house as decor because it's nothing. I'm not going to bow to it. Other people aren't going to bow to it. If I see anybody bowing to my decoration, then I'm going to come in there and I'm going to drop kick them in the back of the neck. And so it's like, first of all, that's not good hospitality. Second of all, you should know that the Torah says, especially in Devarim, that you should not have any idols in your home, your dwelling spaces, because your home will be set apart for destruction, just like the idol that it houses. So look around in your community as far as where you live, your city your state, whatever. Think about edifices, buildings, places of habitation. Any of the places who give home and space to elilim, to idols of any kind. Yes, we do know what idols are, and we don't think that they're anything. But we're sadly mistaken because wherever these idols are, those places now have a uh, a, a notice that has been placed upon them that says destroy soon with the coming of Mashiach. So, you know, like when the angels go out and separate wheat from tares and whatnot, you know, and all sorts of separations happen of all kinds, goats to the left, sheep to the right, all that kind of stuff. Well, these places where idols are, they're going to be removed for lack of a better term they're going to be put out of business shall we say and yes the xmas tree is an idol it is an asherah pole 
of the sort. Also, you should know wreaths are the same thing. Uh, and any sort of uh, phallic type uh, pillars and poles and towers. Those are all like places where people uh, place esteem into them. Obviously, light towers and cell phone towers and water towers are not that. <laughs> they weren't fashioned for the sake of uh, agendas and stuff like that for uh, idolatrous worship. But you can clearly see where the Xmas tree and the wreath and all these other things have been used throughout history and even today for... Uh, very, very crude services uh, to add in the crucifix, i.e. the cross. So uh, the beautiful thing about Lapide is that we do not hold to the, we do not, basically, we do not hang our hat that the device of Mashiach's crucifixion was a cross. Because first of all, the cross came up with Constantine. And with the influence of Rome later on. But uh, what we do know is the word staros is used and it is a tent peg. It is a stake. It is something you anchor down something with. And so Mashiach being basically crucified on a pole like what we do for uh, the Pesach lamb. We take it, we bind it to a pole and we roast it over an open fire. So something to that effect. We also put the word of God on a pole with nails, at least two, uh, when we hang up a mezuzah. So the mezuzah, the crucifixion, the Pesach lamb, there you go. Why don't we paint blood on our doorpost? Because it's already on there if you just buy a mezuzah. Because the Torah is the blood of Hashem, the word of God. Because the life of something is in his blood. The spirit of Hashem is in the Torah. There you go. Spirit gives life. There you go. All right. Connect all those dots. Okay. Nailed it. Post up. All right. So looking at this, uh, this uh, adultery, though, we do know that Judaism teaches that idolatry is uh, adultery because ultimately what you do with idolatry is you give yourself away to spiritual uh, intimacy with another other than Hashem, whether it be yourself, whether it be some deity or some other strange worship. Okay. This is why, uh, if you read the writings of Yehezekiel, which is Ezekiel, my favorite prophet, even though I know we're not supposed to have favorites of anything, he's certainly my favorite prophet. And I look forward, Yehezekiel, to meeting you uh, sooner than later, Bezrat Hashem, with the final redemption. And in the new Yerushalayim, where we'll be like, There will yet be heard the sounds of rejoicing and gladness in the streets of Yehuda and Yerushalayim. So, Baruch Hashem. Alright, anyway, I love that song. It's so amazing. It's so on my soul right now. But... <clears throat> When you read the writings of Hezekiel, uh, Yisrael and Yehuda are likened to harlots. And so many other 
prophecies are brought down about being harlots and um, loose women, so to speak, uh, because of trading in Hashem for other nations, other deities. And we basically are sleeping with someone else instead of our husband. And, uh, you know, that's very, very disturbing. And so this is why Shaul puts do not commit adultery here juxtaposed to don't you abhor idols? Why are you robbing pagan temples? Like, come on, don't commit adultery. What's wrong with you? So I just want to point that out. So that's a, a cool little thing. You can just see Peshat level, but through Judaism as well. Also, again, you kind of go back to the do not stealing is found in the uh, committing of adultery. Beyond the scope of what I intend for this podcast, but Legends of the Jews has a beautiful uh, section on how the Ten Commandments are intertwined with one another. So should one violate the Shabbat, they end up uh, committing adultery or they end up stealing or they end up, you know, uh, not respecting or giving honor to their father and mother or they end up making another God for themselves, so on and so forth. So all of the Ten Commandments are actually a chad. So if you think about breaking any one of those you by default break another one on some level and again understand that the Ten Commandments contain the 613. If you could take the 613, as so many have done in the past, like David, Habakkuk, uh, Micah, you know, and Amos, there are many times where you can, so to speak, synthesize the mitzvot down. Not to mention our very own Mashiach Yeshua did the ultimate synthesis of the 613. You can do it by just doing the Shema and making sure that you attach to it the second greatest commandment, which is the Shema again. But you Shema above by loving God and you Shema below by loving your neighbor. And remember, the heavens and the earth are connected through the Aleph Tav, which is why when you read the Hebrew of Bereshit 1, verse 1, you see that it is Hashemaim ve'et ha'aretz. Ve'et, vav, Aleph, Tav, which you rearrange that to Aleph, Vav, Tav, which is Ot, which is the word for letter, like a Hebrew letter. And remember, we go not by the letter, but by the spirit. The spirit is Yeshua HaMashiach and the voice of Hashem, the Shekinah of Hashem. And you think about that. Well, the spirit doesn't ever lack the word, which is why Yeshua lived a Shomer life and why his Talmudim lived a Shomer life. Everyone and his grand sister followed the Torah. OK, Miriam followed the Torah. Yosef followed the Torah. Like the parents of Yeshua. Yeshua followed the Torah. His brother Yaakov followed the Torah. Yeshua followed the Torah and Kepha followed the Torah. Okay? And so you think about how everything is connected. It's kol echad. So that's why I wanted to go with the 10 mitzvot. Is it shows that there may be 10 here, but they're all one. In other words, you need to be obedient. 
if you're obedient, if you love Hashem and you're obedient. Because by the way, you cannot be you cannot say you love Hashem if you're not obedient. Because then if that's the case, you nullify Yeshua's words when he says, Mashiach Yeshua's words, Slika, when he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, Yeshua says it. So you have to take that up with him. You can't be like, yeah, God, I believe in you and I love you and I want to follow you. Hence, it's always a want and not I am following you because you don't ever hear I want to follow you. Well, you probably do, but chances are you don't since the actual reality of following Yeshua, the actual reality of believing in and following Hashem is to be Torah observant. So for those of us who have been Torah observant for some time now, we're quickly realizing that the way we live is following Hashem. And there is no other way to follow Hashem other than this. Why? Because how else are you going to abide in Mashiach and let him abide in you if you don't study the Torah, if you don't keep Shabbat, if you don't eat kosher? Because if you don't keep Shabbat and you go to a different day to say, well, I'll do a Sunday or I'll do a Wednesday night or I'll do a Tuesday at like two o'clock. That's Shabbat. First of all, you've just told Hashem when the day of rest is. You didn't think his day of rest was good enough because remember Hashem went for six days and in the seventh day he rested. If you do anything other than that pattern, you're now telling Hashem, uh, move over get off your throne. Matter of fact, take your throne and put it somewhere in the corner. I don't want, I don't even want to see it. That's exactly what happens. And for 2000 years, this has totally been the mentality. This is totally the Agarit to the Romans chapter two, verses 21 through 24. We're telling Hashem, get out of the way. We got life to live. And he's just like, uh, if you don't choose life, then by default, you've chosen death because those were your only two options. I told you to choose life, which was obedient to the commandments. But you don't even register my commandments because you think love is like a thing. But yet you don't understand the context of the love. That's the thing. And if you did, then you would know love devoid of mitzvah keeping is not love. So now you have to really reread uh the Agarit to Corinth chapter 13, because there's a whole drop on love. And then you look at everything in the final analysis. Well, love points us back to obedience. So, you know, it just kind of, you know, when you really logically think about things, that's the case. So committing Hilul Hashem, desecrating his name and causing his name to be blasphemed all day. All day long, the name of God is blasphemed. Like 2,000 years all day long. So anyway, uh, Bezrat Hashem, though, that is changing because Hashem is causing the great awakening to finally occur because we are like less than a hair's breadth away from the final redemption. May it be soon and in our lifetimes. Amen. Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. So, idolatry is adultery and i the, before i went off into my tangent i just wanted to point out that if you did not like idols first of all why would you go to a place 
that is built for them, i.e. a pagan temple. Okay, because if you abhor them, abhor is a very strong word. It's kind of like worse than like hate. Like I hate this. Like I hate Shmudas. And it's just kind of like, okay, so why are you going to go into his temple? Because you realize he's like exponentially bigger here and everyone's going to be praying to him and, uh, you know, subject themselves to him. And so you're going to go in there and then you're going to take something that belongs to him. And oh my goodness, as I mentioned this, I think about the fast food or restaurants, any of those um, establishments that have the idols all over the counter, all next to the door. Maybe they have them in the kitchen. I don't know. I've never been in the kitchen and this was a long time ago, but I'm shuddering as I'm bringing up history. But I used to be a person that went to every single Chinese buffet that I could find, every single buffet restaurant that I could find of the oriental food type, or uh, there was even a place that was an Indian um, buffet that I went to, Indian cuisine, which I love tiki marsalas and things like that. But when it involves idols, I don't like that. You know, I'm not a fan. But anyway, all of these places, even uh, places that do foot massaging and, you know, the shiatsu, whatever you want to call it, type things, they have idols everywhere. Like, you're just like, what's the waving cat thing? Or what's this little altar, little dish looking thing? It's like literally an altar with little uh, incense on it. It's got, you know, all the writing and the kind of descriptive information to it not saying that just because it's a language of writing that i don't understand it's idolatrous but i'm pointing out that there's some sort of inscription on the idol not the language but the idol and the inscription itself like we can take english words and ascribe glory to shmuda or uh any of the other fake um gods of the like and we can put english words but that doesn't make the english pagan it makes the inscription pagan so anyway that's where i was going with that but this whole picture just literally flashed on my screen here that uh when we go if you were to go into a place an establishment of the sort you would literally be robbing from them because if you go in there and take anything from them first of all without paying but second of all, you'd be robbing them because as a believer in Hashem, you should not be going to these places. So whether you pay for it or not, it doesn't belong to you. So now you're double robbing. You're robbing Hashem, which again, back to hypocrisy. And then you're committing adultery because you do add into the worship of that place because you're a part of the assembly that's there. You also have paid money into such establishment, which is leading to use of, of worship. Just the same way as we pay our half shekel to the temple when, when it gets to be in existence, speedily and sooner in our days, amen. But in antiquity, when we paid our half shekel, that money was worship money because we ended up having that money be used as it was collected for the tamid offering, for any of the grain offerings and libation offerings, anything having to do with temple uh, service. 
That's what the half shekel was used for. So if you pay your half shekel, you're saying, hey, God, not only do I love you and I want to be obedient to you, but I want your glory manifest here on the earth and I'm willing to pay for it. That's what the half shekel is. And anytime you bring your tithe, that's what that is. That's, hey, Hashem, the people who you have chosen for yourself, i.e. the Levites or the Kohanim, which are of the same tribe, You've chosen them, so I want them to be able to do what you've chosen them to do, which is be a light to the world and to teach me how to be a light to the world. So I'm cool with that. So by the way, so whenever you're giving money to idolatrous establishments, you're serving, you're taking part in, you're partaking of it. If someone invites you to an Xmas party, if you go, you are committing idolatry because you are there saying, hey, this is okay. You're giving your approval. Okay. So just, that's a little rough, but, uh, you know, or a lot rough, but that's the, that's the reality. These kinds of things have to be known. They have to be talked about. They have to be processed. For some reason, uh, this is not taught, uh, worldwide from pulpits and it needs to be, but you know, that's not, that's not up to me. So that's, uh, well, I mean, I guess it is up to me because, you know, if we all did our part, then, uh, that would, uh, take care of that, wouldn't it? Yeah, sure. Certainly would. I'll tell you that, uh, any other establishment that teaches the Bible, but doesn't teach Torah or validate the Torah, then you would know that if you, uh, remove the attendance to such places and the tithe money that's paid to such places, then you would see that those places would no longer exist unless they do some other kind of methods of keeping themselves afloat. But anyway, uh, just, just uh, food for thought, pun intended. Uh, let's see here. What I'm looking for is my drop on Abraham Avinu talking about uh, being dust. Because we're getting into the verse about, uh, here we go. Thank you, Hashem. Bereshit 18.27. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to Adonai, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. That's Bereshit 18.27. This is from Parsha Vayera, which is, and he appeared. Abraham, by the way, at the beginning of this Torah portion, got circumcised. He was sitting at the entrance of his tent, looking to host somebody. And it was the most painful day of his circumcision, which was three days. Three days after you undergo circumcision is like the most painful day. And this is the day Abraham was like, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. I mean, well, let me rejoice and be glad in it. Whew, I'm in a lot of pain. But anybody needs some bread and water because uh, it's real hot out here. And I'm looking and who has a place to lodge and rest from their weariness in their journey? Oh, I see three men. Okay. Homeboy, homeboy gets up and runs towards these gentlemen, which it ended up being Hashem, by the way. So again, three entities, but it was really Hashem. It was one. So um, 
which while I'm here, while I'm already swerved, I haven't even gotten to where I wanted to go, but it's not about what I want to do. I only do these podcasts because I desire for Hashem's word to go forth and best right Hashem transform and bring forth the redemption. I mean, but anyway, um, when it comes to Hashem, when it comes to his manifestations, the kingdom, we have to know that there is no other. Okay, so there's this uh, account that is in the Talmud about uh, these gentlemen who ascended into what's called paradise, Pardes. And it's uh, basically being able to ascend into the heavenlies. And they went there and some of them did not make it back. Only actually most of them didn't make it back. Only one made it back. And the one made it back because they kept it together, so to speak. Uh, one person saw someone sitting and writing. And it's just like he yelled out, why is so-and-so sitting? By the way, the person that was sitting was the lower Memtet known as Enoch. Because, yes, there are two Memtets. There's a higher and a lower. There is the Jewish encyclopedia that brings this down and also Akidat Yitzhak. But anyway... Uh, he saw Enoch sitting and writing about the deeds of Israel, and he was talking about, like, why is he sitting? No one's supposed to be sitting in heaven, and we're all standing and serving Hashem. And so uh, Enoch got in trouble for that, and the guy uh, basically, you know, was, he suffered some consequences as well. It's important to note that uh, the other thing is just because what we see, quote unquote, with heavy quotations, because we have a human perception, but we need to work on having Hashem's perception, because had we had Hashem's perception, we would know that that was Hashem sitting and writing. There was no one else. Only Hashem can sit on his throne. Only Hashem can sit in Hashemayim and uh so on and so forth we're all his subjects we're all his children we're all his servants and so to say oh hashem someone took your seat like what is this and you know yeshua okay he's the throne he's the spirit he's the word made flesh but then yet like if i'm gonna go into heaven am i gonna see him how am i gonna see him and it's just like okay so with all this being said it's important Crucially, to understand how to see Hashem as a chad. Hashem has unlimited manifestations. He appeared as a rock that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness. While being the seven clouds that surrounded Yisrael. While being in between the cherubim of the ark's cover speaking as a voice to Moshe inside the Mishkan, which the whole Mishkan itself, from the inner to the Holy of Holies to the outer court and the surrounding area, was considered like a body of Hashem manifest on the earth. So is it the ramp that's Hashem, or is it the laver that's Hashem, is it the parochet that's Hashem, or is it the the Shekinah above the Ark or the tablets inside the Ark, 
you know, what's Hashem? And it's like all of it. Kol Echad. Hashem is one and there is no other. This is why the Trinitarian belief is so dangerous because it sets us up for failure. Because like these gentlemen who ascended into the heavenlies, if we saw Trinitarian, we would be highly confused. We're like, okay, so where's the Ruach HaKodesh? And how come the Ruach HaKodesh is never mentioned when it says the Father and His Son, Hashem and His Mashiach, you know, when you read into the later parts of Revelation? If you understood Hashem is Echad, you would know the Spirit is Hashem, because Hashem is Spirit. And you would know that Mashiach Yeshua is the Spirit, because the same Spirit that hovered over the waters in Bereshit is called the Spirit of Elohim, but yet Chazal, the sages, bring down that this was the Spirit of Mashiach. And so one scratches their head, and they're blown up into smithereens, because... The moment you start separating out Hashem is a problem, which is why Kabbalists teach, do not study the Sephirot by themselves without the other. Okay, like don't just go, all right, I'm just going to meditate on Chesed, which is one of the Sephirot. And you're like, let's break down Chesed. Let's look at it. You know, and you divorce it from the other Sephirot and you start chanting the letters. You start chanting these little things about chesed you work yourself up into a spiritual trance yes this is called spooky kabbalah this is called practical kabbalah this is in tandem with yoga okay it's all intertwined pun intended because of the contortion that's involved which by the way anytime you contort yourself that's probably a sign that it's not something holy Whenever in the temple or in, in Hashem did we see contortion? Like, oh, Hashem, I'm going to serve you. Let me put my ankle from my right side all the way over my body to my left ear. And I'm just going to lay here. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to chant. I'm going to meditate. And I love you, Hashem. Oh, you're so great. You're so wonderful. Is that really service to Hashem? I mean, come on. Come on. Like, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that one out. Just saying. And the other person or entity that tort, contorts itself is Hanachash, the serpent. This is why they ball up and they do the hissing and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And so just, just uh, you know, yoga looks a little bit serpentine. So it's just kind of like, what's going on here? You know, what are we really trying to accomplish? You know, right? So... Anyway, um, so Bereshit 18.27, we're nothing but dust and ashes. Leading into my verse here about, or not my verse, but the verse we're reading, uh, Boasting in Torah, the Garrett to the Rome, verse 23. So this is a big section. So I'm going to just go a lot of information at one time, and I'm just literally going to read what I have because it literally is that chunky. Okay, ready? And here we go. So when you read this, it has a bunch of verses. It has a Garrett to Romans 4, verse 2, and chapter 2, verse 29. Chapter 3, verse 20. The Agarit to Galatia, chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. It also has Luke 17, 10. And so this is all about boasting in Torah. So when you boast in Torah, but yet you deviate from it, you're committing Hilul Hashem. You're desecrating Hashem's name. Okay. So here we go. So, Garrett to the Romans 4.2 says, 
For if Abraham was set right by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Because remember, Bereshit 18, 27, he said, I am dust and ashes. So I don't care how much Torah I do, Hashem, and how much I nullify myself at the end of the day. It's still Shema Yisrael. I am nothing but dust and ashes. Okay. And you are Hashem Echad. I am nothing. If it wasn't for you, Hashem, I wouldn't even have been alive. I wouldn't have made it through my day. I wouldn't even be able to function. So I do Torah. Yeah, I love you. I'm obedient. Yes, but I don't have any bragging rights. Okay, that's all that verse needed to say. Okay, it doesn't say anything else different. It doesn't say, yeah, don't do Torah because you shouldn't boast about it. You should just focus on making sure you love Hashem. And it's just kind of like, okay, what's with the love thing, man? Good night. So, stand by for a moment. All right, so, Slika, got a little transmission from my uh, Chavivi, Chassis Baz. Shouts out. We do the Hofstra podcast together every week. But anyway, uh, so I said I wasn't swerving, so back on track. Okay, so that was the Garrett to Rome for two. Let's go ahead and hit up Luke 17.10, which in order to get that context, shouts out to Nariar Roke for teaching me how to do constructs uh, because you got to have context in order to understand the point. Don't just isolate the verse. It's like you shouldn't isolate Sephiroth. I mean, come on. If you don't do it with the light of Hashem, then why are you going to do it with the written light of Hashem? Okay, so Luke 17, 6. Then Adonai said, if you have emunah, like a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. And it would obey you. But if you have a slave who is plowing or tending sheep, who among you will say to him when he comes in from the field, come right in, recline at the table. Who says that? But won't he instead say to him, prepare something for me to eat, dress yourself, wait on me while I eat and drink. And afterwards, you may eat and drink. Okay, but don't, isn't that what you say, right? Right? Because, I mean, this is your servant. So what are you supposed to do? Uh, verse nine, he doesn't thank the slave because he did what he was commanded, does he? It's like, hey, thank you, bond servants. Blessings on your head. Mazel tov, mazel tov. Like, you don't do that. So too, so you too, when you have done everything you were commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only what we were supposed to do. Again, Bereshit 18.27. Thank you, Hashem, for letting me memorize that. We are nothing but dust and ashes. I mean, come on. We serve Hashem. And here's a parable right here. Now, you ready for something real cray-cray that I don't know? I, I mean, I've never thought about it before, so it's new to me. Maybe old news to y'all, but old news is new news because there's nothing old in the kingdom. It's all renewed, right? Come on. Anyway, but if you go back to verse 6 and chapter 17 of Dr. Luke, 
Okay, Luke and Bomb here. Luke and Bomb, like literally, Luke drops a bomb right here. He says, Adonai said, if you have, by the way, they call Yeshua Adonai, like the, the name of Hashem. Like, because there's four-letter name of Hashem. There's the Yod and He with the Vav and He. That name is for 12 hours of the day. The other name that goes on through the night is Aleph Dav, Aleph Dalit Noon Yod, which is literally Adonai. But yes, we pronounce the four-letter name, the Yod and He with the Vav and He as Adonai as well. That's because we don't pronounce the divine name because we don't know how. And we only pronounce that name when the Shekinah speaks through us. So when you can have the Shekinah speak to you, through you, then uh, go ahead. But I imagine if the Shekinah is going to speak through you, you're not just going to utter the divine name for no reason and in the inappropriate place. Anyway, just food for thought on that. Uh, so back over here. It says, or Hashem, or Sliqa, Mashiach Yeshua, who's called Adonai, says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted. So the thing is, that's the kind of level we should operate at. Because you connect that to the end of this section. It says, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what we are, what we are supposed to. When you have a Munah and a Shem, when you're obedient to Torah, you are faithful in keeping Torah. What you speak, okay, you have to know there's power in it. There's also power in your words, whether or not you are devoted to service of a Shem. This is why uh, orators of great, uh, they're great orators, okay? Those great orators in the past who've had such hateful and evil speech have literally taken over the world. These are your Hitlers. These are your Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes. These are your Caesars, your Pontius Pilate, okay? All these type of people have used their words, and with their words, they cause major damage and destruction. Lots of death happen through words. So the thing is, we know that in Mishle, that uh, Proverbs that says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. So, you know, I got to do that now. So I uh, did not intend on doing this, but I am. So here we go. Life and death and the power of the tongue. Let's see here. Uh, this is 1821. All right. So, my trusty. Don't let me down. Yeah, nope. Don't let me down. Siphoning through my books here. My arsenal, artillery. Looking for Mishle. All right, so this is what I like to call Shomer Blue. It is the Art Scroll Commentary on Mishle. 1821, check this out. So, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So, mavet vechayim, okay, literally mavet, death, mot is also death, mem vav tav, or chayim, chet yod yod mem. When you look at this, the gematria is. Chayim is 68, 
okay? So when you add Chayim uh, uh, together, Chet, Yod, Yod, Mim, it is the Gematria of 68. So I don't know why I said that, but maybe because I was thinking 6 plus 8 is 14, which is Yod, Dalit, which is the hand, but Dalit, Vav, Dalit, which is David, which is David, is all connotated with life. So, and the hand, obviously being the hand of God. Yod Dalit, spelled backwards, is Dalit Yod, is Dai, which means sufficiency, which is like Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. Almighty. Okay, but anyway, and Dai is what we say, Dai, Dai, Anu, Dai, Dai, Anu, Dai, Anu, Dai, Anu. It would have been enough, okay? And when Hashem wanted creation to stop, like when he uh, created the world, the world would have just kept going and we would have had even more ridiculousness than we have now. But Hashem said, die. Okay, so this is why the waters have shorelines. This is why the land only goes so far out into the sea. This is why, you know, uh, earth is only so big and so on and so forth. Anyway, that's all TMI, probably. But here we go. It says, Shlomo, King Solomon cautions a person to beware of obscenity, obscenity, tail-bearing, and gossip, for they can destroy him. Hatred caused by loose and malicious talk can cause strife and killing. In a way, it can be even worse than the sword, for the sword kills only its victim. But as the sages teach, gossip harms the speaker, the listener, and the subject of the talk. That is from the Radak. It says, Both the highest salvation and worst misfortune depend on the tongue. Among, like literally, we have to confess with our mouth our salvation, right? We have to confess our sins, be forgiven, right? Okay, highest salvation, yeah, okay. High salvation and worst misfortune depend on the tongue. Among the faculties with which man is endowed, none is as valuable as the ability to use words. Okay, this is, whoa, man, this is like why this verse here that Yeshua is saying, you, if you have this amuna like a, like a, a mustard seed, if you just add a little bit, if you understood how powerful your words actually are, you could tell this tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would do it. Why? Because you're going to be using your words, you're going to be using your faith, you're going to be using your belief and your thoughts working in tandem with your words, working in tandem with your actual, like, manifesting this out into creation, it would happen. Why? Because when you go to verse 10, it says, everything you're commanded, when you've done it, you still need to say you're an unworthy slave because you've only done what you're supposed to do. Like this tree is going to do what it's supposed to do because it was commanded. So now, obviously, you may think, man, I don't even know. I think, Shomer Man, something got in your helmet. Something's in your eye. Something is mess messing with, with your arc reactor. Your speaker is off. Like, your mind is lost. Uh, we need to call for help. Uh, you need it because you're going cray-cray right now. And I would like to respond back. Everything's okay. I'm fine. However, the balance to this is we don't go out talking to trees. Now, we need to understand what Yeshua is actually saying. He's saying your words have this power. Now, 
Let's bring it on down some more with some sources back in the Daily Wisdom. Oh my goodness. Parsha Amor or Parsha Behar or Parsha Bekukotai. Good night. It's in one of those. Talking about not being a gossip monger among the people, among the community of the assembly. Because when you gossip about someone, you cause what's called latent, which is like not visible, energy, which don't freak out about the word energy. Creation is energy because creation came from light, which is the word of God. The word of God is literally energy. It's the Ruach. It's the spirit. Why do you think things come to life when the spirit hits it? Why do you think you cross over from death into life? You no longer live for yourself when you're filled with the spirit of God. It's called you've been energized. But anyway, uh, things have been so spooked out because of the new ageness and all the crazy Eastern mysticism and all sorts of stuff. But it's kosher. Okay. This is why they use it. Oh, my gosh. This is why they use it. This is why people do yoga. This is why people chant. This is why people meditate. Because it works. And Hashem wants us to know that. That's why we pray the same prayers over and over every day. Because we have the ability to make them new. And to cause that energy to burst forth into the four corners of the world. Because it does. Our words and our thoughts influence and affect creation so now back to don't go talk to trees but you should know that the power of our words working in tandem with our amuna with our trust with how we live with how we think with what we know with what we do put all that together that's a total package of yes this tree would literally uproot and go plant itself in the sea it would go and remember Things don't happen like a light switch, okay? Light switches are probably the worst example that Sleeka, all mankind has been so acquainted with. When it comes to light in the Jewish mind, it involves a process. It involves step by step. It involves little by little. It involves, i.e., a timetable. So when you're telling a tree to uproot itself and be cast into the sea, it's not going to do it at that moment. Okay. But you have to have the Amuna for what you're actually vocalizing for it to happen. And you need to wait for it to happen. Now, obviously don't stand and stare at the tree. I'm still sticking to this example because that's what we have. But just know that because you've said it, it's now taking effect. So obviously it goes without saying the more you say something, the more it comes into effect. Okay. So how often are we praying Shema Yisrael? And I can tell you that he can, one just can go no further than personal experience. When was the first time you said the Shema backtrack from where you are now, all the way to that point, how much more have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your resources? And how much more have you loved your neighbor as you loved yourself? How much more have you laid down your life for Hashem than you did when you first said the Shema? Just saying, that's what I'm talking about over time. So you keep telling people that they're horrible 
you know, talking behind their back that they're horrible. Guess what? They are going to be horrible because your words are doing it. So uh, it goes without saying that obviously my suggestion is for us to pray and speak forth the final redemption, the return of Mashiach, the rebuilding of the third temple, the baseless love that totally needs to happen with Kalal Yisrael, the end of Lashon Hara, the end of detestable idolatry. Oh, I'm sounding like the Elenu now. The end of exile, the end of baseless hatred. Okay, the end of wicked and evil tongues and evil speech. Okay, speak it. Because why we can. Okay, here we go. Uh, it says, so it's both the highest salvation and the worst misfortune depend upon the tongue among the faculties with which man is endowed. None is as valuable as the ability to use his words. No other can so instantly argument. Or decrease the light of truth, justice, morality, shalom, and happiness. No other, no other faculty of man can, oh, Sleeka, I said argument, <laughs> Sleeka, can instantly augment or decrease the light of. Okay, so you want truth, you want justice, you want morality, you want shalom, you want happiness, augment it. Increase the light, don't decrease it. Uh, let's see here. By the way, it says those who love it will eat its fruits. Uh, so there was this thing that I heard before, like when I was a Christian a long time ago, that those people who's like curse and say curse words, that it enters into them like water. And so you literally like water yourself down with curses. So if you say four letter words and swear words and things like that, that enters into your spirit and manifests. So, yeah. So the SHIT word, you literally turn yourself into the substance that gets shipped high in transit. OK, so you want to speak like that or you want to say H-E double hockey sticks and do all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, you will be playing with he who's got two hockey sticks and going to beat you over the head with him. OK. So just saying, we don't probably want to switch to words like Nanny Mungin and, uh, you know, uh, uh, pudding eaters or uh, uh, lawn mowers. OK, something I don't know. Find some other word as a stepping stone. Next stepping stone is to not even mean to curse people. OK, but I know we're humans and change is a little bit tough sometimes. OK, but uh, at least if you stop saying the words, that's that's better than saying them. Uh, and then if you can stop saying them, then now you put yourself in a position to not even want to say them. And it's just kind of like, all right, this is spiritual growth right here is beautiful. All right, of course, we got to give love to the Chafetz Chaim because he has a, a, a commentary here. But let me go back to my verse real quick, my little phrase. Those who love it will eat its fruit. It says a person who reaps the results. A person reaps the results of how he uses his mouth, whether for good or evil. Those who enjoy speaking. Oh, that was the raw bog. Those who enjoy speaking should be careful to express only words of wisdom, truth, and shalom, so it's to benefit from its fruits. Rabbi Yehono. So this is my confession time. 
One of the other reasons I do these podcasts is so that I can listen to them. I know. I know. A mess. So vain. Did you really? No. Seriously. Uh, without trying to sound uh, humble where I'm not and uh, like self-egotistic uh, where I am not. Uh, literally, I love having these podcasts because, I mean, good night. All these insights, man, come on. It's like, it's one thing to read it. It's one thing to have a picture. But to have audio of it, though, like while you cruising down a highway, rolling on the, on the something, hey, you know, like rolling with my olive hay, rolling with my olive bait, rolling down the sideway. I don't know. You shouldn't roll down sideways. People walk on those. Or is that sidewalk? People walk on the side. Because it's a sideway. <laughs> anyway. Wow. Okay, I, I promise. Okay, I was making up a song. And I should not be this professional. This is <clears throat> this is the Agarit to the Romans podcast with commentary. Uh, connected to the tour portions. Okay, but anyway, seriously though. Uh, I love being able to hear these insights. And it's awesome. I'm thankful to Hashem that I get to do this. So, that's why I talk a lot. That's why these podcasts are like 15,000 hours long. Something that just caught my eye. I will get to Kafa's time. Stand by, homeboy. I got you. Okay. So it says, this is page 156. This is literally how random this is. I can't even tell you what verse this is. I probably could if I look, but I've already delayed so much time. But it says, canopy over Torah scholars as over those who perform mitzvot. Yerushalayim Sota 7.4. Accordingly, those who support scholars will sit next to them, but if they themselves are ignorant, won't they be distressed that they cannot understand the scholars? Question mark. The sages tell us that, in fact, they will be transformed into scholars on par with those whom they had supported. Chokmat Anach, or Chokmas, because it's Ashkenazi. By the way, that just pretty much said you can become a Torah scholar by proximity. Um, the only reason that I would feel like I'm possibly a Torah scholar is because I sit next to Torah scholars. Just saying, you ever heard of Captain Yisrael or Ish Pela or the Incredible Talmud or Hasis Baz or Dr. Sakal? Should I go on? Yeah, I could go on, but we don't have time. Okay, but anyway, all the Avengers, man, all these Lepidniks, all these Sarsha Lone people, man, for real. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Mighty Haver, Shoresh, Ishnatav, uh, Akav, uh, we got Ish uh, Ma'ale, Isha Ma'alea, and uh, we got... Uh, Batman, we got Batgirl, we got uh, Ish Hasid, we got um, <clears throat> Amazing Hassan, we got uh, Hawkeye, we got who else we got? Man, we got so many. Um, Yad Barzell, we got Agent Ahad, we got oh man, we got Naria Roke, we got Yovel. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna. Keep calling them as they come up. Oh, Isha Shamui. And we got um, mm, 
Uh, yes, Silver Surfer, who I call Zoreok. And we got, um, who else we got? Got all kind of people. Oh, yeah, Luco Cage and, uh, wow, Lajaros. Uh, we got, man, anybody else? Going once, going twice. Okay, cool. That's not everybody I know, but uh, those are people that I could quickly think of within the short amount of time. I spend as much time with these people as possible. Like, I literally forsake doing other things that I could do that's enjoyable. Like, I don't know, go for nature walks or go canoeing. Yes, I love canoeing, believe it or not. But uh, anyway, so I choose to spend my time either on text message with these people, sitting next to them at shul, <clears throat> having study groups with them after shul or some other point during the week or on other Yom Tov. Sukkot is like one of the greatest times for that. It's so interesting. They say canopy over the Torah scholars as those who perform mitzvot. So, Yes, you can become a Torah scholar by proximity. So spend time with Torah scholars. Support Torah scholars. Give money. Give your time. Listen to their podcasts. Yes, awkward, shameless plug. Okay. Anyway. Chafetz Kaim, though. All right. But, oh, man. Come on now. Like, seriously. So I, I was just saying, you know, like when you just look at what the source just said about becoming a Torah scholar by proximity. So guess what? You are becoming a Torah scholar by proximity if you're building your library and you're gleaning from the insights of people like Radak, Rabbi Yona, uh, Rashi, uh, Rabbi Nosen, uh, Trugman, Ralbag, the Midrash Rabbah, the Talmud. Rabbi Mayor, Mary, uh, Rashash, you know, Rabbi Kesson, uh, Rabbi Raskin, Rabbi Greenbaum, you know, you got all these individuals here and so many more. And you're becoming a Torah scholar because you're sitting next to them. Because when you study, you either sit or you stand. And you're taking your habitation with them. Because guess what? The word for sitting is Yoshev. It can also mean to dwell. How do I know that? Because my Torah portion is Vayashev. And Yaakov dwelled in the land. Okay. But anyway. Dwell or sit with Torah scholars. There you go. Even if you don't think you know anything. Even if you don't think you know what the letter Aleph is. Even if you don't know Hebrew. Sit with a Torah scholar and get you some canopy love. Just, just get you some. Okay. By the way, I would love it if we had like a bunch of Torah scholars like everywhere. So that no matter where I walked, I was so afraid that I would get punched in the mouth by some ridiculous drop. Like I would be so like amazed and like that would just be so epic for me. I would just be like, oh my gosh, I, I just, I don't want to leave. I love getting assaulted. This is great. Anyway, Chafetz Chaim, are we ever going to say what you need to say? Yes. The Chafetz Chaim from Torah's Habayis, chapter two, Torah of the house, elaborates on the miracle of speech. Generally, when one wishes to perform a deed, he must plan his actions. But when one wishes to speak a complex act, 
one hardly even thinks. But when one wishes to speak, which, by the way, is a complex act, one hardly even thinks. But yet, any other thing we do, like, oh, I'm going to cook dinner, or oh, I'm going to fold some clothes, I'm going to do my chores, I'm going to go to work, I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to do my GPS thing, or someone just texts me, let me text them back. It's like, man, I got to plan this out, I got to think, oh, man, what am I going to do, how am I going to say this? But yet, when it comes to speaking, it's like, Psh, this is so complex, I ain't even thinking about it. Anyway, that's what Hafiz Chaim just said in my mind. Hafiz Chaim, you crazy. You are so crazy. Just, ugh. You know, sometimes whenever I see Hafiz Chaim, I just don't even want to read the insight. Because if I could be honest with you, it's not even fair what he's going to, like, drop. You know, it's like getting upset with people for reading Legends of the Jews. It's just like, I know you did not come to this tour table with Legends of the Jews. It's not because we hate Legends of the Jews or we dislike it. It's just because whatever you're going to read in Legends of the Jews is just not even fair. Like, all that drosh should not be in one spot. And then it ain't just two or three sentences. It's like pages. It's like, I thought you were just telling me that Yosef was tempted by Potiphar's wife. It's like, no, let me tell you about Zuleika, okay? Because, like, she was, like, following this guy, like, every day. And then she had like, her and her homegirls. And then they were, like, doing all these schemes. And then, so that was, like, day one. And then they did this on the second day. And they tried to, like, make him do something. You know, you're just like, first of all, I didn't know Potiphar's wife had a name. Second of all, all this was going on? What? So, anyway, McCuffins kind gives insights. I'm just like... Man, this is going to be ridiculous. I don't even think I'm going to be able to get through it. So, therefore, I choose not to read it. It's just like, come on, man. Read the insight. And as you see, I have chosen to read the insight and I am barely getting through it. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to try my best. Here we go. Trying again. So, he just made the statement, you know, speech is a miracle. Generally, when we want to perform something, we plan it out. And then when we want to speak, though, we hardly even think, even though speaking is a complex act. Okay, woohoo! That's two sentences. No, three. He's still got a whole lot more here. Check this out. But when, okay, all of this is because Hashem wants to utilize the precious power of speech for Torah and mitzvot. Why in the world did Hashem make man able to speak? He's like, because I want you to speak Torah. I want you to speak mitzvot. I want you to say brachas. I want you to pray without ceasing. I want you to bless people because people are struggling, okay? Help them out. Okay, get back. I can do this. I can complete this insight. I can do all things through Mashiach Yeshua who strengthens me. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, may you come soon. Baruch Abba Shem Adonai. Okay. How utterly disappointed he is when people use that capacity for prohibited words. Rabban Gamliel once asked his trusted servant, Tavi. That's a cool name. Tavi. Like my Tav. This is cool. Okay, anyway. Rabban Gamliel once asked his trusted servant, Tavi, to buy him some good food. And he brought home tongue. Okay. 
So I haven't even read the next statement yet. But uh, if I had a Talmud and I asked for some good food, I'm expecting like pancakes. Just putting it out there. So I, I, I will leave no margin for tongue. <laughs> but anyway, either Tavi knows his Rebbe likes tongue, but uh, he brought home tongue because it's good food to him. Anyway, it says next time Ramban Gamliel asked him to buy bad food. He again brought home tongue. Okay, okay, this is a bigger story. This is why I should read and stop commenting. Okay. So next time Rambam Galileo asked him to buy bad food, he again brought home tongue. He explained, when the tongue is good, there's nothing better. When the tongue is bad, there's nothing worse. Vayikra Rabbah 33.1. That is from the Rishash. There you go. All right. So that's why Luke 17 is so legit because our words have so much power and they do exactly what they're supposed to do. So the thing to think about, what are you thinking about? Number two, are your thoughts taken captive to Torah? <laughs> taken captive to Yeshua. <laughs> that's what he meant, by the way. Shaul, when he said, take captive your thoughts, make them obedient and subject to Yeshua HaMashiach, he was saying, make your thoughts Torah thoughts. Okay? If you find yourself swerving off into a gutter somewhere, start thinking and speaking Torah. Okay? So, that was a doozy for me because I never ever thought about the fact that there is not a reason that the tree would not be uprooted and cast into the sea. When you when you say cast yourself into the sea like the tree is that's just what it's going to do because that's what it is. So this is where I wrote in my notes, we should be a Muna on 1100. OK, because if you remember the Omer meditations from Malkut week, this is why everything that we do in Judaism connects is so beautiful. We just got out of counting the Omer from between Pesach and Shavuot and the whole time we're working on taking off the old, putting on the new, refining ourselves, uh, developing our midot, our character traits and quality, increasing our madrega, our, our level of uh, abilities, you know, increasing our superpowers. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Okay, there I said it. We're increased our superpowers through the Omer, which is about a five pound offering of barley okay that's what a omer is anyway so during malkut week it says we live in a world of words whatever you're speaking is going to form you're creating an environment of manifestation of whatever you're speaking that means as you speak your thoughts come out through your speech which is why if you want to know what someone's thinking then get them to talk Okay, this is as simple as that. So what are we doing with our words? So Rabbi Trugman comes in the room talking about Shavuot. And he says, according to the Mishnah and Pirkei Avot 5.1 and expounded upon by Kabbalah, the agency of creation was divine speech. The 10 utterances through which God spoke the world into existence. 
Okay, which by the way is the letter Yod. Yod is the numerical value of 10. And so you got the 10 utterances God spoke to create. You got the 10 commandments and you got the 10 sephirot. There's all sorts of other 10s, but those are the main I want to I want you to look at. And then uh, also creating the world would be the opposite of the 10 plagues. So if you can think about how horrible the plagues was, were, do the inverse of them and you'll get a picture of how to bring forth beauty in creation. Because the plagues were only plagues in Egypt to free the people and to get a wicked guy, a wicked nation to repent. But they didn't want to repent. So you have to use Mita Kanega Mita. So you want to be wicked? Well, something wicked's going to happen to you. But if you want to be good, something good will happen to you. How, which way do you want to go with this? Left hand, right hand. Which one you got? Okay. Anyway, continued. It says the comment of Rashi on Shemot 19.2 regarding the Jewish people, quote unquote, seeing the sounds, because that's literally what the Torah says, is explained in Kabbalah in the following manner. At the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, in order to perceive the divine revelation, all the physical senses and dimensions were unified. All of the physical senses and the dimensions. By the way, creation is about 10 dimensions and we only know about four, maybe five at best. So everything... From what we could sense and everything about creation, all unified. Okay, so that happened at Mount Sinai. It says, as were all levels of human consciousness in an extraordinary union of physical and spiritual synesthesia. Okay, everything was turned up to past 11. Okay, and then it says... When the people saw the sounds of thunder and increasingly loud shofar, it is possibly or it is possible to say that they were privy to seeing and hearing the background static of the Big Bang. Like what brought creation even into existence? They could possibly go back as far as to hear that. So you're looking at a moment in time. From however far ago that Hashem spoke and creation came into being. From Mount Sinai, they could go from that point all the way back to the initial speech. That's how available everything was. Okay? And then it says, In as much as this day had been set aside from the very beginning of creation, as Rashi states, it was as if... The world was, in fact, being created on the day of the giving of the Torah. So not only could you go back to that point in time, but everything was so unified and so intense that it it's as if it was that point in time. In Pirkei Avot 6.2, it states that every day a voice goes out from Mount Sinai, admonishing the Jewish people to return to Torah. It was asked in the book, Degel Machane Ephraim, which is the banner of the camp of Ephraim, in the name of Baal Shem Tov. 
If there is a voice coming out every day from Sinai, then why don't we hear it? If we don't hear it, why bother to have a choice or why bother to have a voice come out at all? He answers by saying that every time a person has the arousal to better themselves or return to God and Torah, it is because they are in fact hearing that voice. You know exactly what I thought today. If you hear his voice, which, by the way, is uh, a double barrel shotgun, basically, from the Agarit to the Yehudim, which is normally called Hebrews chapter four and also Tehillim 95. So Agarit Yehudim four verse six and seven, eight and nine and 10 and 11. Okay. Wow. I just wanted to make sure because I'm starting at verse six, but the key verse is going to happen in the middle. Of course, because it's a construct, right? Context. Cool. So keep in mind, this is all Tehillim 95, 11, but because we have a little bit of a Lapid action going on here, we're going to expand that out with some Lapid commentary. And then we're going to use that commentary to throw us back to some original Lapid commentary. And yes, I'm talking about oral Torah. Known as Midrash and Talmud and Sages. Okay, anyway, those are the original Lapid, by the way. Because they saw Yeshua, but they couldn't really perceive it. It was like through a glass dimly. And they couldn't quite see it all, but they saw it. You know, so it's kind of like the way we look at the sun. We see it, but we can't we can't really quite see it. And if we really try to see it, we get blinded. But we know it is is there. That's the way the the sages and the prophets saw Yeshua. They saw us, you know, as followers of Yeshua. And they saw the final redemption, too. While we edit. OK, but anyway, Agarit Yehudim, chapter four, starting in verse six. So then it remains for some to enter into it. Yet those who formerly had the Besorat Hageula, those who formerly had the Besora, those who formerly had the renewal of their flesh, the redemption of their flesh, the good news of redemption, the good news, the gospel. Okay, that's what all that means. So yet those who formerly had all that proclaimed to them did not enter because of disobedience. When is this situation, when is this circumstance that's talked about in this verse? It's talking about Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, the same gospel that we know and hear today, well, if you're a Lapidnik, the same gospel. If you're somewhere else in another faith system, then no, it's not the same gospel. But anyway, that gospel is being preached. And it's like, no one entered into it. And so... Why didn't they enter into it? Because they were disobedient. Just like what starts to happen in Parsha Beha Oloteca from chapter 11 and on through the rest of Bami or Bami Bar. So anyway, uh, so it says those who formerly heard this Besora proclaimed to them did not enter because of disobedient. And again, God appoints a certain day today. So there's a certain day Hashem is going to make again. I'm going to give you another opportunity. It's called today. And it says, saying through David after so long a time, just as it had been said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
For if Yehoshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Shabbat rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered God's rest has also ceased from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through the same pattern of disobedience. A good way to not make it through the final, to the final redemption or be a part of the final redemption or be after the final redemption, be disobedient. Don't keep any oil in your lamp. Don't go inside the house. Don't enter into Torah. Don't get circumcised. Don't be filled with the spirit. Don't eat kosher. That's a good way to fall through the same disobedience. This is a good way to die in the wilderness. All right. So, uh, obviously it goes without saying another way to not enter into that rest is to not keep the Shabbat as opposed to a Shabbat. Anyway, um, that was a little salty. My bad. Didn't mean for it to come out like that. Okay. So Telim 95 says, I vowed in my anger that they would not enter my resting place. It's important to know that when a vow is made in anger, it can be overturned. But if you make a vow and it's all good and no one nullifies it in that first 24 hours, it stands. But if you make a vow out of anger, it can be annulled at any point. So what's that really saying? Because if that's the way it is with us, how much more so with Hashem? Because Hashem's ways are higher than our ways. His uh, thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Hashem also keeps the same commandments that he commands us because he's not a thief. Because remember, if you don't do what you teach, then you're a thief. And Hashem's not. He's counted among the transgressors, but he's not a transgressor. Because in order for you to have that statement be true, that you're counted among them and you're not one of them, it, but default means that you're not one of them. But you can be counted among them. People can say, if you're a black person, that, hey, you're in a room full of white people. And it's just like, I know, but I'm black. And it's just kind of like, why we got to talk about race, you know, anyway, but you get my point. It, you can be counted among, but that doesn't make you one of them. Okay. Anyway, just saying the tour is written with black and white fire. So if we think that black people should be somewhere or white people should be somewhere, it's together. Okay. But anyway, not like together like that, but I'm saying like we should be echad. We should be uh, working to bring the light of Hashem into the four corners of the earth. Okay. Anyway, obviously there are more colors in the world than black and white. So also just saying um, white is the combination of all the colors. So what does that mean? <laughs> Come on. All right. So Midrash Tehillim has a story time. A king once grew angry at his son and banished him from the palace, vowing that the prince would never enter it again. What did the king do? He destroyed his palace. He rebuilt it and then welcomed his son to the new palace about which the king had not vowed. He thereby managed to fulfill his vow and bring his son with him into the palace. End. The end. 
Similarly, God said of the generation of the Exodus that they would not enter my resting place. They would not enter this resting place, but they will be able to enter a different resting place that I will build in the future. Vayikarubah 32.2. What do Yeshua say? I go to prepare a place for you. Because the place that's here right now, you're not going to be able to enter into it. Because in about, I don't know, about 40 years from now, they're going to destroy it. Ain't nobody entering into it. Okay, so I'm going to go build a new place and you can come there. Okay? So anyway, that's what we're talking here. Hashem has done it. Yeshua done it. Now Yeshua says, I only do what I see my father doing. So now we know. He's lining up with Jewish literature. And it goes on to say in this comment here. Though they would not merit entering to Israel at that time, they would merit God's future resting place in the Olam Haba in the world to come, which is happening after the final redemption. Obviously in stages. Uh, but just as the king's future palace was not included in his initial vow, so too God's future temple was not included in his vow. This is from the Eights Yosef. Footnote says, the Talmud cites a debate about whether the generation of the Exodus will merit to see the Olam Haba, which is called my resting place. Oh my gosh. Really? Son of man has no place to lay his head. Birds have nests, fox have holes, and son of man has no place to lay and rest. I.e., it's not the Olam Haba right now. In the Olam Hazay, we're going to have some trials and tribulation. Even though we've overcome it, we're still going to have to go through this wilderness, but we're going to the resting place, Olam Haba. Anyway, according to the view that they will see it, the words in my anger are seen as a qualifier. God says, I swore in my anger, but I've changed my mind. Sanhedrin 110b. According to the Al-Sheik, the entire psalm speaks of Moshe's generation. See Al-Sheikh at length. He interprets the present verse as follows. God vowed that the generation of the Exodus would not enter the land of Israel alone without Moshe and his merit to accompany them. But in the future, Moshe will lead his generation to the redemption. This is where you get some of the commentaries that say that Yeshua HaMashiach is a manifestation of Moshe. But uh, one needs not to go crazy on that because remember Hashem is a Chad. And what we talked about with how is it Moshe, how is it Mashiach, but Moshe appeared with Mashiach and Eliyahu, but I thought Eliyahu was also a name of Mashiach. So then Mashiach is Eliyahu, and then the cloud engulfs these three on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Hashem says, this is my son in whom I will please. Obvious thought is that, yes, Yeshua was in the middle of that, and he's the standout character. But let's not forget Moshe and Eliyahu were there. So you have Moshe, you have Eliyahu, and you have Yeshua. You have the word Yoma, which is Yod, Mem, Aleph. Yoma is likened to Yom Kippur because the whole tractate of Yoma is all about Yom Kippur. So uh, just want to throw that out there when you look at that. So uh, we're looking at 
the day of literally the days that atone. Yom Kippur being called Yoma is also the day that's considered the holiest day on the calendar. So the holiest, the highest, all of that. And it's also happening on the 10th of the month. And there's so much drosh about the 10th and what that means and how that corresponds to Yom Kippur. And on the seventh day, which seven is completion, I mean the seventh month, on the 10th day, which seven means completion, and you have 10 being all this elevation. So you got the 10 and the seven, which is 17, which is the gematria of Tov. And Tov is uh, a name of Torah and its teachings, and it's also a name of Hashem. But yet Yeshua was questioned, good teacher. And he says, why do you call me good? There's none good but Hashem. But also Yosef was 17 when he was sold into slavery by his brothers, because that's in Parsha Vayashev. Ask me how I know, because that's my Torah portion. But when Yosef was sold into slavery, the Kerhertumash began, or brings out that this was the beginning of his reign as king. So 17, even though something horrible happened to him, it was actually good because it was the beginning of his reign and it was the beginning of the Egyptian exile for his whole household. And because he went into exile first, the rest of the household went into exile in a very respectable way. They went with all sorts of provisions, with all sorts of fanfare. They did not have to go down in chains. They did not have to go down in bondage. And they got the best of the land because they got placed in Goshen. So it was Tov, even though it was not, quote unquote, Tov for Yosef. But Yosef suffered with much joy. Even though he was perplexed, he didn't understand. He struggled with it for a little bit, but he was like, you know what? At the end of it all, what you meant for evil, Hashem meant for good. So, Baruch Hashem, I am the suffering servant Yosef. That's why the Mashiach, who's called Messiah, son of Joseph, that's why he suffers and he does it with joy. Because he knows that he is bringing the ultimate good. Anyway, continuing on to this, uh, Tehillim 95, 10 through 11 from the Midrash Tehillim. This is all on page 189a. It says, they do not know my ways. I vowed in my anger. The mistake of the generation of the Exodus was not only to anger God, but to accept his decree that they would remain in the desert. See, they didn't have to remain in the desert because why? Hashem was angry when he said, you know what? You're never entering into my rest. Just like it says in Sanhedrin 110b. So hold up, like hold all the phones. You mean to tell me thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people died in the wilderness because they accepted Hashem's decree that he made out of anger. So again, I want to bring to the table, if you are listening somehow still to this podcast, why in the world Will we just wait on Hashem to bring the redemption, knowing that he has given us an opportunity to merit it and knowing that the more we wait on it without doing things to merit the final redemption and to speed it up, knowing that if we don't do those things, it will get worse. One of the things is we will get older, we will die and the redemption will come after we die, but it could come in our lifetime. We could merit it. We could do things to merit the redemption. And it will happen. So what are you doing with your words and your thoughts? 
back to that again. Anyway, because this statement is so ridiculous, I'm going to reread it. The mistake of the generation of the Exodus was not only to anger God, but to accept his decree that they would remain in the desert. God therefore says to us, do not be like those who did not know my ways. Mm. Don't be like them who did not know my ways. The people who did not enter into my rest because today they didn't hear my voice. They know I, I set another time here. That was yesterday. This is today. Today has enough words of its own. Let's, let's focus here. And then it says, for I vowed only in my anger had they repented and beseeched me with all their might, I would have forgiven them. You too should do so. And I will expedite the redemption if you are meritorious. That is from the Yavets. Ready for some footnotes? Of course. See similarly Vayikarabah 32.2 and Eitz Yosef there. God says, in the eyes of the people, I am angry, but not in my eyes. <laughs> in the eyes of the people, I'm angry, but not in my eyes. So it looks like anger to you, but it's not anger to me. Mm. Think about that, right? Because you, you have a Shem who's uh, Melech HaOlam. It's like, so if he gets angry, what is that? You know, it's like, uh, I don't know because you're, you don't get angry like we get angry. And now this insight is saying in the eyes of the people, I'm angry, but not in my eyes. So anyway, food for thought. Continuing, it says, as it is written, I vowed in my anger. When a vow is taken in anger, it can be annulled. God therefore made this oath and what appeared to be anger so that it could be annulled. It seems that this is how Imre Yosher to Vayikra in the same place understands the metaphor of the king and his son cited above. God vowed that they would not enter his resting place, i.e. the tabernacle in the desert, but he left open the possibility of their entering Yisrael where a new tabernacle and temple would be rebuilt. End of that insight. Just a little drop here from the Psalms in practice. There's a thing called Kabbalat Shabbat where we welcome in the Shabbat with some introductory prayers on Friday nights. And Kabbalat Shabbat begins with a recitation of Tehillim 95 through 99 followed by Tehillim 29, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. You got five Psalms, like five books of Torah, five chapters. And then you got this sixth over here, which is Tehillim 29. So what's the deal with the additional? Well, you know, the Torah is written, but it's also a man. Six is the number for man because it's the Vav. There's that. Anyway, uh, so it's followed by Tehillim 29. This custom was introduced by the great Kabbalist Rabbi Moshe Corravero of Safad or Safed from 1522 through 1570 and has been practiced by both Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jews ever since. By the way, anytime you can get Sephardi and Ashkenazi on the same page, you got to be legit. 
Okay, but anyway, the six psalms represent the six days of creation, which preceded Shabbat. They are hymns of praise to God, which serve to inspire us and put us in the right frame of mind for welcoming the Shabbat. Because the word Kabbalat is the word for welcoming. So if you want to welcome someone, you would Kabbal, Kabbal them. You would receive them. Um, and this is kind of why we do Baruch you know, welcome, please come, you know, blesses this person who comes. And when they come, you bring them over and that's Kabbal. That's when you welcome them in. So it says we've been, we're in the mind frame of welcoming the Shabbat queen, the Shabbat spirit. And that's why Yeshua being the Lord of the Shabbat, that's the husband, that's the king. So when the king and the queen meet on Shabbat, there's that. Okay, uh, then that's from the Sidur Otzar HaTefilot. Three main themes run through these psalms, all six of them. One is the joy the theme of joy, which is proper mood for welcoming to Shabbat. So if you're not joyous, you might want to fix that. The second theme is creation, since Shabbat is the crown of God's creative work. So if you acknowledge the Shabbat, you acknowledge Hashem as a creator because there's a crown on top of creation. But if you don't want to acknowledge the crown, then it's like going up to the king, knocking the crown off his head, which means, hey, you thought you were a king? You're not. Your crown? Piece of crap. Okay, that's forever recorded now. But anyway, that is as horrible of an example. Oh, yeah. Like we read, Hilul Hashem. Yes, that's what that is. Hilul Hashem is not something lightly. Like, I don't know. The way that I just said that last comment about the crown, that's like the intensity of Hilul. Like, Hilul is bad. Okay? It's as bad as it sounds. Like, Hilul. Ooh. Like you even get just a horrible uh, feeling from it. Don't be Hilul and Hashem. And uh, side note, uh, don't ever knock a crown off a king's head. If you love your life, don't do it. Anyway, uh, this theme evokes our acknowledgement of God's majesty and our willing submission to his kingship. So one who keeps Shabbat, that's what you're doing. The third theme is anticipation of the Messianic era. Our sages tell us that Mashiach will have arrived by the seventh millennium, which is appropriately called Shabbat. The preceding 6,000 years of history can be compared to the six days of the week. The seventh millennium will be Shabbat. Thus, as the Shabbat begins, we read Psalms that speak of the ultimate Shabbat. The times of Mashiach. And literally the source is my prayer. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so side note. If you are anti-Shabbat, you're probably not joyous. You probably don't think Hashem is the king or the creator. And you also don't even want to see Mashiach. And you're not going to like when Mashiach gets here. Because it's going to be like a Shabbat. So I uh, might want to adjust your Shabbatness if you're a person who wants to keep Shabbat or claims to or desires to make sure that you get that worked out, uh, myself included. All right, we're in this together. All right, so 
a Garrett Rome 229, because that's on the list of our Gatling gun source cross-references, says, rather, the Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is of the heart. Parsha Ekev talks about the heart being circumcised. And when you look at the heart being circumcised, it's about the removal of the desire and the um, the soul focus, if you will, of wickedness and evil. So if you have a circumcised heart, you first of all, you want to do good and you don't desire to do evil. That's when your heart circumcised. But anyway, um, so it says a Jew is not one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart in spirit and not in letter. Okay. There's a spirit about how you follow the Torah that shows your circumcision of the heart. You're not just going to say, yeah, I don't steal, but you're, you're not going to hate your brother in this, in your heart because it's hard to steal from somebody you don't hate. Like, I don't hate you, so I'm not going to steal from you and I'm not going to kill you because I don't hate you. And I'm not going to like tell you a lie because first of all, I don't hate you. So anyway, that's kind of what that looks like. It says his praise is not from men, but from God. So if you really want to call yourself a Yehudi, if you really want to know what what it means to be Jewish, that's what it is. It's inward. Okay, and obviously the outside will follow. You will get the beard. You will get the payos if you want them. You'll get the keeper. You'll get the ZZ. You'll get the Kashrut. Like you'll get the, the black and white at some point, I guess, or something of the Zanut form. But it's all going to come based off of what's going on in the inside. So many times as Rabbi Anava brings down, they fix the outside and they don't do the inside. Got all these people with beards and kippots and they're cussing, they're not eating kosher, they're not Shomer Shabbos and all sorts of stuff is going on. That's got to change because why? We got words and we got things to talk about, namely that all of our Jewish brethren who are currently not Shomer Shabbat, they will be. Hashem is going to make them and we're going to pray for them to be. And no more Jews going out to eat on Shabbat. Like we're not doing that. We're having Oneg with pre-cooked food that we already prepared before Shabbat. We are uh, households of Torah observance that the men wrap to feeling the men don't um, to eat and we say our brachot and the women light candles and the women make challah. You know, we raise up children who are Torah scholars and who are obedient to Hashem, who love and fear him. That's what we do. That's what our words and our thoughts are. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, Egeret chapter three, verse 20. This is all Romans. It says, uh, for no human on the basis of Torah observance will be set right in his sight. For through the Torah comes awareness of sin. So again, obviously, just keep making this circle because uh, this verse has been so out of whack for 2000 years. So obviously, if we need to repeat it on so many different levels, let's do it. So if you think that you observe Torah and you're OK with Hashem. Well, just because you observe Torah does not make you okay with Hashem. It takes a little bit more than eating kosher. Just think about it. 
the logic of this. If I eat kosher, Hashem loves me. It's like, okay. So that's just one thing. And how often do you eat? Okay, if you're like me, you eat a lot. Okay, so okay, that's probably working in your favor a little bit. But now let's think about this. If you go out of your house or if you get up from the table and you don't say your bracha, you've just nullified your kosher eating. You're not set right with Hashem. Second of all, if you're eating kosher and you're not thinking about Hashem, you don't love Hashem, you haven't dedicated your life to Hashem, you have no desire whatsoever for a Mashiach, okay? It don't matter how much kashrut you eat. That, that's working against you, my friends. So don't put the cart before the horse. Get your horse. Tie it to the cart. Okay. Boom. Now, it says, Torah gives you an awareness of sin. You realize that the way to sin is to violate the commandments of the Torah. Okay? So pick any of the commandments that are in the Torah and and violate it. And that's called sin. So Torah teaches us, okay, if you don't do this, you're a sinner. Okay? If you do this, you're a sinner. Like all the different ones of things that we shouldn't partake in. Like if you go and take a woman who has not known a man and you go take her and do vile things to her in a field you are supposed to get married to her after you pay for what you did you know like you can't just go around doing that that's not nice okay you've brought shame to the father's house you've brought so much trauma on this young lady you know all this kind of stuff and so it's just kind of like, all right, so Torah teaches us how to deal with that. Because sometimes uh, we, I mean, we see it in the news all the time with all these different uh, sexual crimes that go on. And it's just kind of like, okay, so Torah makes you aware of, hey, these are some things that are in violation. So let's stay away from them. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, verse 24 says, as it is written, uh, among the Goyim, Kol Hayom. Wow, we're finally on verse 24. Good night. It's only been two hours. Says, <laughs> wow, thank you so much for being here about this podcast. This is just so much to talk about and taking time to do it. As it is written, among the Goyim, Kol Hayom, Hashem HaElohim, Mina Oats, is uh, basically it says all day, all the day long, the name of Hashem is being blasphemed. Yeshiyahu 52.5. So first thing, let's break out that the Torah is a ketubah. Okay. Why is that important? Because... Oh, wow. So let's not go to verse 24 yet. Got some things out of order here. Stay on the boasting. Let's go back to who's real Jew. No boasting, disobedience, and all that kind of stuff. Entering into the rest. Okay. So as we're looking at how to be set right with Hashem, it's not technically through Torah observance. 
Okay, Torah observance happens when you're set right with Hashem, or best right Hashem it does. It should. It can precede it, but just know that you getting set right with Hashem, whatever you want to call it, justification, conversion, all that kind of stuff, that comes as a package deal. Because why? Go back to Shavuot studies, Par Shabami Bar studies. The Torah is a ketubah. It's basically, in our day's terminology, the wedding ring. Okay, the wedding ceremony. Okay, this is the Torah. And I wrote down here that you don't have a wedding ring unless you've been betrothed and are committed. Okay, uh, for guys, we you, we don't have a wedding ring unless we're married. Okay, so like the engagement ring that the woman wears, she don't just go like, oh, I think I'll buy an engagement ring today. It's like, so who's the lucky person? Because, you know, the men, we're the ones who are fortunate because he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's not the other way around. But anyway, um, so, yeah, you don't just have a ring unless you're like in this. You're like in it. OK, there's previous steps that are taken. Otherwise, you're pretending. OK, you're, you bought an expensive ring and it doesn't make you attached to anyone. You're just in this la la land. You're like. Oh, don't you love my beautiful ring? And it's just like, so who's your husband? I didn't know you had a family. Are y'all planning to have kids? Do you, you have a house or like, you know, what, what, you know, can I come over? Like, can I meet your husband? And you're just like, no, no one can meet him. Cause I can't even meet him. Cause, cause this is fake. Yeah. So that's what your tour observance is. If you're not in a committed, devoted relationship with Hashem. By the way, this is the crux of every misinterpreted Shaul statement for 2000 years. I'm sure we're not the only ones that's gotten that. The only problem is, is this is not taught from the main uh, vast majority of who has the writings of Shaul. They turn his writings into get out of Shabbat and Torah observance and Judaism for free cards. And they're not. They're fake cards. Throw them in the trash. Okay. Uh, now, now we can go on to a Garrett Galatia. I chose to pick up in verse 16 because in verse 15 is some Lashon Hara about uh, Kepha. And we don't do Lashon Hara, so yeah, we're not going to do that. So we're going to pick up post Lashon Hara. And uh, make some tacoon here. It says, yet we know that a person is set right not by deeds based on Torah, but rather through putting trust in Mashiach Yeshua. Okay, which is funny because you're not set right based off of your deeds in Torah, but you're set right when you place your trust in Torah. And when you really think about that, because Yeshua is the Torah, right? So what does that really mean? So if you trust in Torah, you're saying, okay, so this word of God here, this is bond. This is it. There is nothing else. Then you understand the word was God. The word was with God and the word became flesh. It's like, okay, so that's Yeshua. Okay, this is Hashem. So Hashem and his Mashiach is his word. Okay, this is the spirit of Hashem. Okay, so I accept, I embrace this. 
And now as I do Torah mitzvot, I'm only doing Torah mitzvot because I trust in Hashem, which by default makes me trust in Yeshua, which by default fills me with the Ruach HaKodesh, which by default sets me right with Hashem. So you just got to follow it all out. But anyway, it says, so even we have put our trust in Mashiach Yeshua in order that we might be set right based on trust in Mashiach or trust in Torah and not by deeds based on Torah. Because no human will be justified by deeds based on Torah. But if while seeking to be justified in Mashiach, we ourselves also found were found to be sinners, is Messiah then an agent of sin? So now it escalates. It's like, so... Yes, you can place your trust in Torah. You can do it and do it. Okay, I got it. Now I'm working. Okay, cool. All right. But I'm going to hang out in sin camp. It's just kind of like, okay, wait, what? So now you're going to turn Mashiach into an agent of sin? Because you're like, yeah, I believe in him. I trust him. I, I'm totally in. It's just like, but but you violated Shabbat. You're going around cursing. You're, how, do you even eat kosher? And where's your keeper? Where's your ZZ? You know, do you, did you study the Torah portion? This is like, so are you believing in all your trusting here? Hey, you've now made the Torah. You've now made Mashiach an agent of sin. This is why Shaul again wrote in chapter two of Rome here. Uh, he says, you're boasters of Torah, but you deviate from it. So anyway, it says, may it never be. For I rebuild, for if I rebuild the very things I tore down, I prove myself to be a lawbreaker. Because you realize when you cross over from death into life, everything that was associated with your death is gone. But if you go back to it, if you try to live out old traditions, you try to uphold, you know, uh, things that you know you're not supposed to be doing anymore, places you know you're not supposed to be going anymore, you know, hanging out with, you know, events and uh whatnots that you should not be hanging out with anymore you now are doing what's called rebuilding things that you tore down and now you're saying yeah i'm a lawbreaker no tour for me and it says for through the law i died to the law so when you understood these things were wrong i.e you became aware of it because of the torah makes you aware of what's wrong so through that you died to that aspect, you said, okay, so I know I'm not supposed to do this. Okay, so let me die. Let me stop doing this. And then it says that I might live for God. So now what am I supposed to be doing? Okay, so you died and then you crossed over into life. So you now ventured to the resurrection and the life. So that's what Torah observance is. It's the resurrection and the life. It says, I have been crucified with Mashiach. Okay, because Mashiach. His death was in the, uh, fulfilled the category of breaking, violating Torah, being rebellious. So, so now you die the death of one who is rebellious and you become alive to one who, as one who is obedient. So that's the crucified with Mashiach. It says, and it is no longer I who live, but Mashiach who lives in me. So now you cause the Ruach HaKodesh to live through you. You open yourself up so that the light of God can permeate who you are. And shine out into the world. So the you becomes the him. Because the you makes yourself a servant. Makes yourself a vessel for that which you contain. 
That's how you can do a mitzvah and you can literally say, Hashem kept Shabbat, even though you kept Shabbat. Because you made yourself that empty, you died that much, and the resurrected life you live, it's Mashiach living it now. So you're like letting the word of God take on flesh when you become obedient. Okay, it says, and the life I now live in the body, I live by trusting in Ben Elohim. Okay, so the only way to continue to live like this is you have to continue to attach, connect, make yourself uh, known with him, you know, interact, intimate. Okay, keep it flowing and uh, like a mikvah, basically. It says, and Ben Elohim, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not, I do not nullify the grace of God. Because the grace of God is, hey, you messed up. Here's another chance. Because yesterday was the day that I said as today. So you should have heard my voice yesterday, but you didn't. So here's another day I'm appointing for you. Today, hear my voice. And it's like, okay. So this is my grace that you didn't hear it yesterday. But now I want, it, want you to hear it today. I want you to repent. We just read that earlier in the Garrett chapter 2 to the Romans. That the grace of Hashem is to bring us to Teshuvah. Anyway, so you do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through Torah, then Messiah died for no reason. Okay, so yeah, so you do Teshuvah with your Torah observance. You don't just have Torah observance and no Teshuvah. Mashiach died for no reason, if that's the case. All right, now we're on verse 24. Final verse, final part of my page, Baruch Hashem. Okay, so Hashem's name blasphemed all day long. So now this is where we go to Yeshayahu. He taught, he knows more about it than we do. Okay, so in this section, there are the nations like the uh, Assyrians and Egypt and Babylon and all the other ones of our oppressors that we're talking about here. So I'm going to pick up in verse 4. This is Yeshayahu chapter 52, verse 4. For thus says Adonai, Elohim, as for Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, my people went down originally to sojourn there. Okay, they were only supposed to like be kind of like, quote unquote, in exile. They weren't supposed to be like enslaved and stuff. Like who escalated it quickly? And then it says, but Assyria oppressed them without justification. So now we went to Assyria later and it's just like, well, now we ain't got no reason to do this, but we're going to do it. And then verse five. So now, why should I remain here? The word of Hashem, where my people uh, was taken for no reason. So why should I be here? I mean, my people are here for no reason, and now they're being oppressed for no reason. It says their rulers glorify themselves, the word of Hashem, and constantly all day my name is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, I'm going to fix this blaspheme issue. Therefore, on that day, they will know it is I who speaks. Here I am, which is Hineni, which is what Abraham used for the Akedah. So what does it mean they blaspheme, blaspheme my name all the day? It says, so it's Yehelini or Yehelilu, Yehelilu. Which almost sounds like Yeh Hallelujah, but it's Yeh which means glorify themselves. The unusual form of this word makes it difficult to determine the root, and therefore its meaning. One possibility 
which the translation follows, is the root of Hallel, which is to praise or glorify. So now you know the amazing Chazan, whose name is Hallel. That's what his name means. And it says, and that is written in the reflexive form, the rulers will glorify themselves for being able to dominate God's people. That's from the Targum, Rashi, and Abarbanel. Alternatively, the rulers will justify themselves and praise God, saying, this is what God wants. We are only fulfilling his will. The nations will say that if God enabled them to conquer the Jewish people, they are justified in oppressing them as they wish. They are only doing God's will. That's from Rabbi Schwab, citing collected writings of Rabbi Hirsch, volume 4, page 213. The same idea is found in Yeshayahu 53, 4 and 5. Another possibility is that the root Yelil is, is the root. And it says this means to be well or lament the cruelty of the rulers causes their Jewish victims to be well their faith. Radak. Rabbi Hirsch understands the word as a combination of both roots, Hillel and Yalil. Praise and be well, indicating the dual nature of the ruler's attitude. In their hearts, they glorify themselves, but feign lament. They delight in torturing the Jewish people and hip, hypocri hypocritically cite or hypocritically sigh that they are doing what God wants. So there's like a, a little double action going on. It's like I'm glorifying God, but. Uh, this is not, I don't know if this is good or not, you know? So this is what's going on. Hashem's name is being blasphemed all the day because there's kind of like this, hey, don't steal. Hey, listen to what I'm teaching you, but I'm not going to listen to what I'm teaching. Hey, I'm going to steal. Hey, no idolatry. Hey, no adultery, but yet I'm going to steal idols. Hey, you know, don't be a thief, but yet I'm going to be a thief. On top of being an idolater and not listen to what I say, be a hypocrite. And today I'm not going to hear his voice. I'm going to boast in Torah and deviate from it all at the same time. There's this dual thing going on. It's like, what in the world? So how do we fix this? How do we beha alotka this dark room? Lift up the light. Benny B brings down. Ben Burden, Ladder of Jacob on Beha Alotka, says the students share the same spiritual root as the master. Although they are dependent upon him like branches on a tree. Rebbe Nachman, Likute Maharon 66, 1A, Volume 8, Breslev Research Institute, page 67. The true Zodic is the foundation of the world and everything depends on him for the true Zodic is the is unique in the world and even all the Zodikim are only branches from him Lakute Maharon 1 70 Yochanan chapter 15 verse 5 bringing in the source of all sources Yeshua HaMashiach himself speaking I will not himself, because obviously the words he speaks is the words Hashem wants him to speak. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who remains in me and I in him, the same bears much fruit. 
For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this is important because Beha Alotska begins with menorah talk. Okay, Aharon's lighting it, talking about the construction of it. it. Says, like the menorah, the vine has a huge trunk whose branches spread out and bear fruit, which the fruit that's bared is light. So the fruits of the spirit is actually the light of the word of God. So when you look at the menorah, there are actually six branches extending from a seventh branch, which the seventh branch is the trunk. The seventh branch is the central branch and everything points to that branch, which this branch is called Shabbat. This branch is called the Zadik. This branch is Yeshua. So our whole week looks towards the Shabbat. And everything that we do looks towards Mashiach. So there's all that. <clears throat> and then Rabbi GQ, Rabbi Abraham Greenbaum brings this down. On Beha Alotka, in the generation of the wilderness, the Leviim carried the parts of the portable sanctuary on their journeys. The highest service was that of carrying the golden ark of the covenant through the wilderness until it would reach its place in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. The ark of the Mishkan was to become the ark of the Beit HaMikdash, by the way, that's what that means. It says, from, the, from there, the light of the Torah would shine to all the world. Because the Temple Mount is the highest place in all of creation, by the way. And it's the it's on the foundation stone, which is the whole thing that holds all of creation together. And so from there, when you put the Torah on it, crowning the king, so to speak, then the whole world gets to bask in the light of Torah. And then it says, it is said of carrying the Ark of the Covenant, that while its bearers were apparently carrying it in truth it was carrying its barrier at bearers however this was a one-time service of the levites in the generation of the wilderness after the entry into eretz israel the essential service of the levi'im the levites that remained for all times was that of singing during the temple services and so when you really look at the final analysis of it all, yeah, as we're journeying, we're carrying the ark. Really, it's carrying us. This is why Yeshua says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, like, because I'm the Torah and I'm the ark, I'm the Shekinah, you know, all of that. So I will carry you as you carry me. And I am the center branch that you need to be grafted into, that you need to be connected to. And you, being my student, you will share the same spiritual root that I take nourishment from, which is the mouth of Hashem. So when you do that, that's how you bear and emanate light into the world. And that's how we can take this crazy duality, transform it into the ultimate uh, reality or the oneality, if you will, of the Shema. And this is what I call emanate. So Parsha Beha Alotka with Agarit chapter 2 verses 21 through 24 is all about the need to emanate, to be grafted into the true vine, to take nourishment from the root 
and to remove ourselves from ourselves and cause the self of Hashem to be manifest through us. And the way we do that is by understanding what do we know, what do we know, and live lives that say, Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai. Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet, Vekaye Olam Natabetokeinu, Baruch Atah Adonai, Noten HaTorah, Amen.